1: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people
2: today.
3: Hello, you're listening to The Future of Media Explained with me, Press-Gazette editor, Dominic Ponsford, and this week we're learning all about how to go from newsman to moneyman. With me on this week's podcast, we have Press Gazette's Associate Editor for Investigations and Interviews, Will Turville. Hi, Will. Hello, Dom. So, great topic this week. I think all journalists would secretly like to either write a novel or run a business and feel they probably run that business much better than whoever's, whoever's doing it. But so many journalists launch their own businesses like titles, magazines, newspapers, websites and never make a bean. I'm actually speaking this week to a man
0: who has done both of those things, Dom.
3: Is he written a novel Jim as well? Jim Vanderhay,
0: he- yes. He's actually spoken to us this week for this week's podcast because he wrote a book. So I have spoken to or interviewed Jim Vanderhey, who's the co-founder and chief executive of Axios, which recently sold to Cox Enterprises for $525 million. Before that, he was the founder of Politico, which itself, after he'd already left, recently sold to Axel Springer for a billion dollars. So here's
3: the man to answer your questions. Brilliant. Confession time. I hadn't really heard of Axios until you interviewed him the first time, which was, I think, about two years ago. Yeah,
0: they are mainly a brand in the US. They don't really make any bones about that. I don't believe they've got a UK or European correspondent. I think, and we got into this in the podcast, but he does have international aspirations. But yeah, they're very much focused on the US. They've got a big US news site, lots of newsletters in lots of different specialist areas. And also they've got into local news recently, which I think maybe is where we first started writing about them.
3: So before we get into the interview, Will. And for those who haven't read your previous interviews with Jim, just give us the rundown on what the Axios story is, or where they came from, and what they look like now. They were founded by three three former
0: Politico journalists and Jim Madney himself, who was the former business leader at Politico. So they launched in January 2017 as a free to access website. They really got into newsletters very early on, and arguably were one of the first big media companies to really get into newsletters, and. The way that they're consumed now on the national scale in the US is they've got these excellent journalists who get lots of scoops and send them out to readers, email subscribers, weekly or daily in some cases, on the news. In the media space, there's Sarah Fisher, who sends out a Tuesday morning email every week, which contains two or three big exclusive stories and then some analysis alongside that. So they're very big for business news, national news, political news and then a couple of years ago they got into local news and so now they've got something called Axios Local which has got local newsletters that are sent out daily across I think now around 25 US cities and it's van der ambition for that to be spread out. And he really, as we get into in the interview, he really wants that to spread out to across the whole of the United States. He wants to have a newsletter for every single city in the United States eventually. That's his ambition.
3: Well, it's, it's a heck of a story, isn't it? And a great a great success story, which we love on Press Gazette. A good get, Jim van der Heij. Uh, wh- why is he speaking to us right at the moment?
0: He's got a book that he's written along with his co-founders. That came out last week, I believe. I got my copy in the post on Friday. It's called smart brevity, which is a phrase that they, the Axios founders came up with in 2017 when they launched. And that's basically the way they see it is it's the power of being able to say more with less and that's why if you go on to axios.com or into any of their stories each one of their stories will be written in the same format which has got bullet points and bold font and it's designed to make it easy for people to read news which i think maybe in the uk I think UK news stories are quite easy to read. But in the US, that was a bit of an issue. If you have a read through, say, a New York Times article, then you might be a bit lost as to what the big news points are in it. Axios sought to address that, and now they've written a book about it. Will, how can I
3: be as successful as Jim van der
0: Well, Dom, let's find out from the man himself.
1: I think the secret is there's not one, right? I think... We benefited both at Politico and Axios from being started by journalists who had business instincts. And why that mattered was, to have a really successful media company, you have to have as good of a business as you do an editorial product. And when you think about editorial products, you have to think about the business. Those two have to work in synchronicity. I think so many of the media companies of the digital era that failed, did one well and did the other poorly. And so they might have had a really interesting editorial product, but they didn't think about the business. And we did both of those from the get-go at Politico and certainly at Axios. And so being able to have synchronicity with business and editorial is a big deal. I think having a real understanding of the market that you're going after. Our market in both cases was kind of elite readers, like people who are in business, finance, media, politics, who need really high quality information to do their job and both at Politico and even more so at Axios, that's what we've done. And that's who we try to write for. And that's very clarifying because it determines the type of reporters you hire, the type of products you roll out and the way you go about selling. And it's difficult. Like I, I tell anybody like running a media company is really hard. Starting a profitable media company is very difficult. If you look at the history of the internet, at least in America, you can count on one hand, really, the number of successful media companies that have, have sold and have really been able to derive real value from it. You had, obviously, Insider, Business Insider at the time. The Athletic sold to The New York Times. Politico sold to Axel Springer. And now we sold to Cox. And there's Vox has been successful, but there's not that many successful media companies and it's a difficult space because you have to find that synchronicity
0: I just wanted what the common traits are between good
1: entrepreneurs and good journalists and if there are any it's rare right there haven't been that many journalists who successfully started media companies you're seeing more of it I think it's one of the most promising trends if you look in the US if you look at puck if you look at punch bowl if you look at semaphore which is about to launch yeah Uh, If you look at Jessica Lesson uh, at the information, those are all journalists turned entrepreneurs. So I love that trend. I think the advantage that I personally found being a journalist who then became an entrepreneur, who became a CEO, is just the ability to be able to sniff out what's real and not real. The ability to pick up the phone or do the research to figure out how do you actually fully understand and master a given given area and then the big differentiator is if you have that editorial credibility and you're running the business, it's easier to get editorial and business to work together in harmony. There's usually a lot of conflict between those two sides of the business, and you don't want conflict. You want there to be a nice wall. You don't want business to influence your editorial content. But you want those two working in harmony and thinking about how do you create a durable business that can support a really high quality editorial product.
0: And when you first launched Politico and maybe Axios to a lesser extent, because it was your second business, how daunted
1: were you by that prospect? I think one the first time harder than the second time. There's no doubt. When we did Politico, I was going from being a journalist to being an entrepreneur. And I think a lot of people would have bet that it was going to be a failure. And if you look at the history of startups, that bet would have been the safe bet to take at the time. By the time you do it the second time, we're 10 years in, we really have learned a lot about how to start a company, run a company, hire the right type of people, build the right type of culture, mine the right areas where there's revenue. And so we had a high degree of confidence when we started Axios. There's always, you're always a little worried and you have these fundamental assumptions and you hope they're right, but we had a high degree of confidence that we would be successful. I don't think we thought we'd be this successful this fast. It's been Mm. delightful to see that we were able to create $500 million in value in five years. It was even more delightful to see that we've had the editorial impact that we've been able to have, whether it's in national coverage, political coverage, now expanding into local coverage. That part's been very gratifying and maybe quicker than we would have thought.
0: Mm. Um, In your Politico journey and in your Axios journey, did you ever think that maybe were there any ever moments where you thought this actually might not work? Or were there some real low points during those journeys?
1: Certainly at Politico, there were moments I remember very vividly, we were racing to start we left the Washington Post in late 2006. And we wanted to launch Politico in January of 2007. And I remember sitting john Harris was one of the other co founders sitting in his office. And we had been so busy building the business hiring people, We really hadn't looked at the content and we're about a day from publication and we got a stack at the time. Someone had printed out every article we were going to run the first day and we were horrified. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we looked at each other and we're like, we'd always promised we had a pack that we're never going to ask each other the question, if you could do it again, would you still do it? And at that moment, we broke our pact and we were both like, I don't know if I'd still do this, if I could do it over again. It it felt pretty bleak at that moment. It just felt like we're going to have so much work to do. It's hard. We're trying to run a business, create a brand, hire people. And now we've also got to deal with all this editorial content. But, Hmm. you know, that, that happens. And to be honest, you need that. Like the fear of failure fuels you right what's going to get you up at four o'clock to work another 18 hours when you've been doing that every single day for months at the beginning of a startup like part of it is the exuberance of success that could be but a lot of it in those early days is you don't want to embarrass yourself you don't want to be a flop particularly Mm -hmm. in the media and particularly in dc like we've been in this space for a while we're not unknown people were covering us and had we failed either with politico or axios there'd have been a lot of coverage of our failure and there's certainly we had missteps at politico that were were covered pretty aggressively by the washington post and others and so that fear really does fuel you it's funny i was just talking Mm. to my daughter about this about this idea of feeling like you're a fraud sometimes and 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 whether or not you're the real deal at the thing you care about, and that fear of even being a fraud, am I really as good as people think I am, or as good as I think I am, that fuels you. Like You, you want mostly positive energy to fuel you, but a little bit of negative energy is not bad. It gives you a little high-octane drive.
0: Yeah. So you feel? do you feel in those sorts of instances that there are many people out there in DC, for instance, who deep down want you to fail?
1: I'm sure there's people who would root for our failure. To be honest, at the beginning of Politico, I felt like most of the town was rooting for our failure. I felt the opposite with axios i was surprised how warmly we were greeted by others in the media people seemed to be cheering for us in a way i did not anticipate particularly because we were trying at axios to unleash a new format this idea of smart brevity bringing efficiency to content trying to cover a lot of complex topics with a lot more efficiency i thought people would roll their eyes or they would be critical but i felt like people cheered for us and I'm sure there's always people out there who who don't want you to succeed, but what you do is you surround yourself with people who do want you to succeed, and you make sure you have a clear idea of where you're going, and you give yourself the runway to, to get it done. No, we're lucky. We've done two, and we've been successful, and we've had way more successful days than unsuccessful days. But that's also the life you choose when you're gonna be an entrepreneur. Like it's not for everybody. I think it's the most intoxicating way to live life. There's just something about betting on yourself and betting on kindred spirits to do something that people think is unthinkable. I think it's a great way to structure your work life. I find it energizing, invigorating a lot of people would hate it. Part of that is that fear of failure. The Did you just throw away your career? Or are you doing something that's being ridiculed in the media? We're lucky we've had a lot more good days than bad ones.
0: When you launched Axios in January 2017, you and your team identified a number of issues that you wanted to fix or help to fix with Axios and problems with American journalism, too long-winded, boring, chasing clicks. These were issues that you identified not at all publishers, but I suppose these were issues that you saw with the journalism industry at the time. I just wondered to what extent you think you have changed. um, Axios has changed that.
1: We were. There were several things we were trying to fix for. The big one, which you mentioned, is I personally think most journalism is very inefficient. Making the reader work way too hard to figure out what is most important and why it's most important. I think we have solved for that with smart brevity. The architecture of smart brevity is very much tell me what's new as sharply and as accurately as possible. Tell me why it matters. Give me the context and then give me the opportunity to go deeper if I choose. And that structure has been extremely successful for us and others have mimicked aspects of it. And that's good because I think more efficiency and content is good for humanity. We also wanted to tone down, turn down the heat uh, there's so much opinion, so much noise out there. Two things that we did. One, we said we're never going to have an opinion page because we don't want to just mass produce noise. And we also said that anybody who works for Axios, you've got to buy into this idea that we don't want you on Twitter. We don't want you in public forums making it clear what your ideology is. We want people of all persuasions to come to us and as a source of truth, whether they mm. like the truth or don't like the truth, that's that's on them. But w- our promise is we're going to do everything we can to get to the closest approximation of the truth in a non-ideological, totally clinical way. I think we've been very successful on both of those fronts. And I think it's allowed us to go into new spaces. And it makes me very bullish about the future of, of Axios and the future of, of journalism. I think that there's some trend lines that are moving in a direction I like.
0: Yeah. And you mentioned some promising startups in the US media earlier. Do you see them in a way as offspring of Politico and some of your ideas sometimes?
1: I do, in a good way. I think Jessica Lesson has been very clear that she mimicked a lot of the work that we did at Politico to create the information. And she's created an amazing company and she should be very proud of what she's built. If you look at the group that started Puck, We've talked a lot with them. I think they drew a lot of inspiration for how they run a company and how they think about content from us. Punchbowl, Jake Sherman, Anna Palmer, John Bresnahan, they all worked for us. We've been helpful in trying to help them think about how to do their company, and they've been extremely successful. Ben Smith, who's part of the team that's gonna do Semaphore, worked for us. He's a friend of ours. Yeah, I would like to think that we have had an effect on how people think about running these companies. But more importantly, hopefully the effect that we had, and I think it goes back to the work John Harrison I did early on, is I think we opened the door to the possibility that journalists can be entrepreneurs. And a lot of people ran through that door, and that's awesome.
2: From the New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads, the best of our reported features and essays, read aloud. Featuring writing from our authors, including Ian McEwan on wrestling with Orwell's Inside the Whale,
0: Might we reasonably assume that there is no longer an inside to the whale? That the creature lies stranded on the beach, as whales sometimes are? That the guts and blubber and ribcage are on display?
2: A year inside GB News with Stuart McGurk.
0: At first, the problems weren't ideological, but practical, technical and quite, well,
2: obvious. And Maria Wilczek on Belarusian football fans who took on Alexander Lukashenko. After the August 2020 protests, hundreds of ultras were roughed up and held in custody. One was later found dead in suspicious circumstances. Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search audio long reads from the New Statesman wherever you get your podcasts.
0: I I don't know if you were able to watch it this week, but Semaphore had a conference kind of introducing some of their ideology ahead of their launch next month. And I think one of there are a few points in there that struck me as quite axios in approach, without having the details yet, but reimagining the way that traditional articles are written and generally trying to provide straightforward news that's that cuts through the noise, as it were. And they're obviously they're expanding internationally. Does that Do do you feel if they succeed, will you feel slightly frustrated that you haven't pushed Axios out internationally before them?
1: No, I think we have our plan and we're going to execute on it. And Semaphore will launch and they'll bring unique experiments to the world of journalism and we'll pay close attention to it. And if they have experiments we haven't thought of and they're successful, we'll probably copy them. Just I'm sure there's aspects of what we do that they'll copy. No one comes up with an original idea anymore. We're all... Mm. Variations of someone else's smarts in the past. And so people should embrace that. In terms of international expansion, it's just I'm very uh, clear eyed and clinical and unemotional about the direction we head in and the direction we go in. It has to be areas where I know we can be the best and I know that we can make money. And international is hard. And so I think local is better than international. I think national coverage is easier than national. I think subscriptions is easier than international. And those are the directions that we're headed in. That said, once we have all the pieces in place, which will probably be two to three years, then we will look to expand internationally. I think any area, particularly any English speaking area where there's content and there's communications is ripe for Axios. And mm. we'll be there eventually.
0: And for listeners who aren't familiar, can you explain smart brevity to us? You've already mentioned that phrase. You've got an yeah. upcoming book coming out this month, and it's already got some. I saw the cover. At least it's got some impressive endorsements: Jamie Dimon, Evan Spiegel, Ariana Huffington. So, what's smart brevity about, and what's the book about?
1: Smart brevity is a, is a way of rethinking how you communicate, and it's based totally on the data and the science and the trends about where sort of the human mind is going. It teaches you how to be much more effective, much more efficient, both in writing and verbal communications. It shows you the power of using short words, sharp words, smart words, getting rid of the sort of acronyms and the business speak and the journalese and all the things that kind of make communications or media stories soggy and unapproachable for the average person. And when you put smart brevity into practice, whether you're in business or whether you're a journalist, the results for us have been transformational. You'll see twice or you know, two times or four times the engagement on things you want people to engage on, whether it's a story or a piece of internal communications, you'll get people to pay attention to you when you're doing a presentation. Because the idea is most people are perpetually distracted and you have to retool how you think about communications. You have to be much shorter, much sharper, you have to give them the context, and you have to let them go on their merry way. And most journalists and most businesses don't communicate that way. So almost every word that they're writing or saying is being lost in the ether. You might as well not have said it or written it at all because nobody's paying attention to it. Hopefully by reading the books called Smart Brevity, The Power of Saying More with Less, it's a quick, easy 80-minute read. But I think it's packed full of things that would work, whether you're a teacher or whether you're running a company or whether you're a journalist.
0: I find you a very direct speaker. Is that something that you've, uh, have you modelled that yourself on the smart brevity idea or is that something that's always come quite naturally to you?
1: It comes quite naturally to me, but I've seen how effective it is in being much shorter and sharper and direct in your communications. One of the big things that we talk about in smart brevity or talk about at Axios is just authenticity. You, What you fundamentally want as a communicator, you should write like you speak and hopefully you speak tightly if I'm gonna see you at a bar I'm gonna tell you in a pretty excited manner like what's new and then I'm gonna tell you like why it matters to me and then you're gonna give me some kind of you know social cue about whether you want to go deeper into the conversation I'm not going to suddenly have a stilted voice of God I'm not gonna bust out acronyms I'm not gonna bore you with a vomit of words And that's essentially what most people do when they get behind a typewriter or get on the keyboard of their iPhone. Hmm. For reasons I can't fully explain, it's just a defect in the human species. And so I think if you can become a direct communicator, if you can become a clear communicator, you can cut through the noise, right? It's a tough time to be a communicator. It's a tough time to be a journalist. Tough time to be a human just because there's so much hitting everybody at once. And yet very few people have sat back and said, wait a second. If there's more information than ever before hitting me from more directions than I can possibly keep up with, should I change how I communicate to meet the moment? And what this book does, what Axios tries to get people to do is get you to stop and think maybe you should do that and maybe it could have a transformational effect on your life.
0: Axios Local, how is that going and what are your latest plans for progressing that and growing that across
1: the United States? Yeah, we'll be in 30 cities in the U.S. by the end of the year. Hopefully, at the end of next year, we'll be in at least 55, maybe more. And the idea is we're planting a flag in these cities where you're seeing a big population growth, where you're seeing workers and a work-from-anywhere world move to. And we're trying to create a daily habit by having a morning newsletter written by two or three of the smartest reporters in each one of those cities to create this daily habit of going to Axios to understand how I navigate my local community as the readership grows, as the revenue grows, we add more reporters on top of it. And the idea is to think about this as a 10 to 20 year project. Everyone else thinks local news is dead. We Mm -hmm. don't. We think you just have to do local news differently. You might not have a big building, you might not have a printing press, but if you have really high quality content that people living in those cities need on a daily basis, you can make money off that and you can create a great product that makes a meaningful difference in those communities and so it's just a baby right now or a baby in, in in 25 to 30 cities but our hope is we'll ultimately be in every u.s city with a real robust presence and that will then take that model internationally but you have to view it as a 10 to 20 year project because most other local publications or many other local publications have been in decline for reasons that you're quite familiar with prints expensive google ate everybody's ads facebook ate the ads that google didn't eat and and Craigslist ate all the classified ads. So something needs to come in to replace that. I think we figured out the formula to replace it. One of the reasons we did a deal with Cox is they have deep roots in local journalism. They own the Atlanta Journal uh, Constitution, which is a big player, obviously the biggest player in Atlanta. And so together, like we see a very prosperous future for local news and we're committed to it.
0: How do you see the future relationship between the news industry and
1: Google and Facebook or Meta? My view on that is media companies made a big mistake when they allowed themselves to become too dependent on an outside party right? And so you had all these media companies getting into bed with Google and Facebook or Snapchat or anyone else to cut these big content deals mainly as a way to offset the declining revenue because Google, Facebook, and Snapchat were getting that revenue. And I think that was a bad bet. I think that you have to build a company where you're going to make money because people come to you for your content. They come directly to you for your content and that you then have mechanisms, subscriptions, and ads usually to monetize against it. And so we cover Google and Facebook aggressively. They advertise on us aggressively. But, and we get traffic from them and they get some traffic, I'm sure, from snippets of our content, but we don't, we're do not we not dependent on them. They're just something that we cover and they're often an excellent source of traffic. But I've said, and I believe, I think those companies, if you just step back and look at clinically, they're a net positive to us because we're able to very cheaply accrue more audience through using a lot of their targeting features. And they buy ads on publications like Axios. And they're a rich target for coverage and very aggressive coverage. People are interested in. They're huge companies with tentacles the world has never seen before. And that's my view of them.
0: Hmm. Have you Are you involved in any licensing arrangements with them currently?
1: No, we had a small licensing agreement on the, the Facebook news tab. Hmm. I don't know if that's still going. I think they're canceling all those anyways, but it's like, 100,000 or something like that. It's very small. Mm. Yeah, we didn't spend a lot of time. We never did any of those Facebook watch deals. We never did any huge news initiative things where they're paying us gobs of money for our content. Uh, We we were probably too small and we're too busy focusing on our own owned and operated uh, channels.
0: Mm. And not Google News
1: Showcase? I do not believe we are.
0: Okay. Moving forward, uh, this summer, you agreed to
1: sell Axios to Cox Enterprises for $525 million. Why sell now? Cox came in our last round, and they led the investment round. And we were very, really impressed with them during that phase. We weren't out shopping. As a matter of fact, we didn't shop. Cox came to us after that and said, man, we really like what you're doing. We'd love to help help speed this thing up. We'd love to help get you more money to put into local news. That started a conversation about what we want to do with our lives, which is we want to run Axios for as long as we're healthy and able and we want to do it our way and they're like great like we'd love to be the majority shareholder we'd love to be hands-off and let you guys run this thing we want you to have 100 percent editorial control we want you to run the business we love the culture you've created we want to be the big financial partner when we could be help helpful strategically we'd love to be helpful. That we put together a term sheet, and it was probably the easiest media deal that will ever get done. It, it was There was very never any tension, total agreement on the mechanics. These things end up being thousands of pages. There was never a raised voice. There was never, I'm going to walk away from this. We never shopped the deal. They never tried to use the swooning market to try to leverage us to, to drop the price. It was a beautiful deal. Our lawyers walked away and said it was the easiest deal they've ever seen done. Hmm.
0: And was there any small part of you that that wished that someone had bought you and said, no, you can go off and you can go off and do something else now. We'll take Axios from here.
1: No, <laughs> that was that's why I thought no one would ever buy us because we're a hard company to buy because yes, we had venture capital. So at some point we needed to do a transaction, but this is all I want to do. There's I don't have any other tricks in the bag. Like I start and I run media companies and I love it and I would do it for free and I want to do it with Axios, and I think Axios has all the ingredients that I want. There's no other media company I would ever want to run, and I'm never starting another media company, And. Uh, I really want to, I, my firm belief, I tell this to our staff all the time, Axios is probably one to 2% as big as I think it can be. That's how enormous I think this can be. If we execute, there's a lot of ifs, there's a lot of things that we have to get right. But there's no reason that a couple years from now, we're not thousands of employees with tentacles deep into every community in America, and we're starting to expand internationally. If that is right, and I think it is right, and our track record shows, I think, that that we're pretty good at executing on on, on what we're seeing as being real openings, that'd be a huge company. It'd be a fun company and an important company, and that's what, you know, the older I get, that's what I care about. Am I doing something that's deeply meaningful, that I think is better for society, and that is good for our employees, and that people can work in a workplace that they're proud of, that they can leave here smarter and feel like they're better people, that readers feel great that we're trying to get them some real good, high quality information in a well-lit space. That's a fun life. Like media, if you can do it and you're good at it, I can't think of a better space to be in.
3: Thanks for that, Will. Great to hear from Jim Vanderhey. I just like listening to American people's voices. I love the way they speak. It's so smooth, isn't it? The, sort of listening to that, it made me think it's a shame that there's so few sort of UK titles that have had anything like that sort of success, possibly in not really in the B2B space. There's legacy titles that have done very well, haven't they? Like the FT, the Economist, that have transitioned well and become even bigger businesses probably than they were before. But I can't mm. really think of startups that have done quite as well as that.
0: No, not on the same scale, I'd agree. I think there have been some really good digital startup successes in the in the UK but they're all smaller at this stage and and more niche I suppose but yeah it's amazing to think that you could just launch a national news brand from scratch admittedly with the Politico background but then obviously they did launch Politico to start with but it's impressive that you could just go in January 2017 okay Dom I want to launch a UK national news outlet and make it into a massive business I think you'd be it'd be
3: difficult to do that here You've followed the Axios story for a few years now, and I know you've spoken to Jim Van Der a few times. What do you think were the big uh, take-homes for that, were the most interesting uh, snippets?
0: First of all, and it sounds trivial, but actually it maybe isn't that trivial because of because he's actually written a book about this, but I just think, listening to it, listening back to it, that Jim really does practice what he preaches. He speaks like an Axios story himself. He's very to the point and engaging, and I think maybe that is actually, yeah, potentially a good advert for his own book. I think for the for Axios in the future, I'd be excited if I worked there, I think. And if you listen to his ambitions, he thinks that Axios is currently one or two percent of its potential size. So that if you take him at face value there, then he's talking about building a business that is worth tens of billions of dollars. And in general, what I take away from it, and this is not just speaking about Axios, but the general digital media market in the US and hopefully beyond is that we're actually in a really exciting time. Despite the financial headwinds that we're facing in the short term I think there are businesses to be built out there as Axios has shown and as he says throughout the interview he's excited about other startups coming up through the US as well like the information and I think what's encouraging as a journalist myself about these startups is that these aren't startups that are just going after lots of clicks using cheap tactics these are journalism startups that are relying on quality expertly produced journalism rather than clickbait so I've come away from it, as I often do when I speak to Jim Van de Hay, feeling quite upbeat about the future of serious journalism.
3: Yeah, I think it bodes well, doesn't it? And I think the the fact that investors have put a 525 million price tag on it suggests that they're betting on those sort of businesses having a good long-term future. And I think when you, if you look at business information valuations and anyone who's any business that's based on quality information subscriptions seems to have a pretty good valuation on it at the moment yeah so yeah i think
0: the long-term picture's good exciting times let's turn press gazette into a 525 million pound
3: success story or yes please will (laughs) you've been listening to the future of media explained with me press gazette editor-in-chief dominic ponsford our associate editor will turville And it's all been expertly produced by Adrian Bradley. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast, share it with your friends, like it, and leave a positive comment. And you can read more on this story and all the other themes that we cover in the podcast on our website, pressgazette.co.uk.